Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hello, this is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm David Sims. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm joined today by two other members of our culture team, senior editor Lenica Cruz. Hello. And staff writer Shirley Lee. Hi, hi. Hi, guys. How you doing? What's up? Excited to be here. Rooming along. Beep, beep, David, beep, beep. Yes, this is the, the Red Sob crew, I guess, <laughs> the three of us, because here today we have gathered to talk about the film Drive My Car by Rusuke Hamaguchi. Um, it is a Japanese drama that was released back in uh, November. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last year. It won the Screenplay Prize, I believe. Is that right? That is right. It's had a theatrical release starting in November, but it came to HBO Max on March 2nd. And even more surprisingly, maybe, but excitingly, uh, it also racked up four Oscar nominations. It's the most nominated film ever from Japan and the first time that a Japanese film has been nominated for Best Picture. Uh, It was also nominated for Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. I think that's also a first for Japan and Best International Feature. Uh, It won Best Foreign Language Film at the Golden Globes. It won three awards at Cannes, including Best Screenplay. And it's also one of only six films to win Best Picture from all three major U.S. critics groups, uh, New York, L.A., and the National Society of Film Critics, and the first non-English language film to do so. And speaking as the vote counter at the New York (laughs) Film Critics Circle, I'm the one tallying things there. Uh, That was a very exciting development when Drive My Car won because... It was a well-liked movie and it was very well, you know, received critically or whatever, but it was a very small movie compared to some of the sort of awards players that were swinging in and, you know, your big studios, your Netflixes, right, are all rolling out their kind of Oscar packages. And this three-hour adaptation of a Haruki Murakami short story swept the table and took it all the way to the Academy Awards. It's very exciting. So... You know, there's a lot to discuss. And I wonder if sort of the steamroll that's been on means we're in this new era of appreciation for international film. Obviously, Parasite won Best Picture a couple of years ago. At the You know, like mm-hmm. whether some sort of uh, barrier is being crossed in terms of American audiences' willingness to sort of check this kind of stuff out. Anyway, we can dig into that as we talk more about Drive My Car Lenica. For folks that maybe saw it all the way back in November or whatever, can you give us a plot refresher? Yes, I would be happy to. Like you said, Drive My Car is based on a Murakami short story. It's actually, it's based on a Murakami short story of the same title, but then it also kind of draws from a couple of other stories within the same collection. But it follows a theater actor, playwright, director named uh, Yusuke Kafuku, and he's directing an adaptation of Anton Chekhov's 
Uncle Vanya for a festival in Hiroshima, but it's really about this relationship that he develops with this red Saab 900. No, I'm kidding. He's de- <laughs> he, he, he suffers a loss at the beginning of the story, and he ends up forming this connection with the young woman who was hired to drive him around. He's diagnosed with like glaucoma, so he needs someone to drive him. And, you know, he resists this at first, but he is won over by this quiet young chauffeur named Misaki Watari. And the two of them develop this really interesting, quiet friendship um, over the course of, like you said, three hours, David. But at no point does this movie feel like it's overstaying its welcome, uh, which is kind of an amazing feat. But mm-hmm. it's it's really about these two characters and really the, the characters surrounding them as they deal with loss and try to communicate with one another. And it's just this very human story. <laughs> This is a film by a Japanese director based on uh, an original work by a Japanese writer, but it also, the play at the center, Uncle Vanya, it, the script is multilingual. Like there, the actors that are cast in it speak their native tongue, so they'll speak. Mandarin and Tagalog and Korean Sign Language and English. So the idea of people coming from different places and trying to reach across, you know, the distances in between and and saying something, it, it really is baked into the plot, even if even if Uncle Vanya isn't itself like, you know, any kind of analog for things that are going on within the story itself. Like it is a way that the characters are negotiating these just the fundamental question of like, how do we relate to one another? And to what extent can we be comfortable with the things that we don't understand about one another and still like feel empathy? Right. It's sort of digging into the gulfs between people that are spoken and are unspoken. And it is a difficult movie to summarize. And yet, like you say, once you're watching it, it's not an, an inscrutable film at all. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're, you're just immediately involved with the characters and, and what, what they're going through. It's not, it is not like uh, the kind of art film that feels very distancing or anything like that. It is a very human drama about humans. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you got it. And I am thankful that I didn't have to summarize it because it is very hard to summarize. It's like very easy to summarize, but... Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> not to disagree with you, but like the basics are, are pretty straightforward. But what sticks with you about the movie goes beyond the skeleton of the plot. It's about the things that are not said often between characters in the same scene. It's the things that they intuit from the silences in between their words. And it's just, it's this like really magical film. Anyway, we can, we can get more into it. It has a plot. Like the plot is he's trying to put on this show. It's it's a lot like the Muppet show. Actually, he's trying to put on a show. (laughs) No, no, like, but like, so, you know, it has the through line of, okay, he's in Hiroshima. He's got this sort of complicated production. He wants to arrange where everyone's going to be speaking different languages. And Mm -hmm. any time, you think the film's going to build to a more traditional sort of plotty head. Mm-hmm. We're back in the car and we're having these weighty conversations and we're like, right, this is where the juice is, really. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this way I could um, pay more attention to other people's emotions. If I learned the dialogue perfectly, including theirs, I can react better. It is so fascinating to watch this weird process of his play out where he's dealing with these actors who, 
at times grow frustrated and are like, I don't know what you want from me. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. What this person is saying. I don't know what I'm supposed to be reacting off of. Like what he seems to what he's doing. What we understand of acting seems to be sort of like shutting down kind of traditional mm-hmm. models of communication. And Kafuku mm-hmm. is kind of just like, you just do what you're supposed to do. I, you know, it's all going to make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, what, yeah. what was your takeaway of sort of his method and what the movie's saying about language? All of those scenes of them rehearsing Uncle Vanya around the table, that became really meditative for me. I wasn't necessarily, again, I wasn't necessarily listening to the lines or um, taking away what they were saying. It just became about the sounds and the way they were delivering it. Because uh, I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to meet Kafuku where he was, because <laughs> he, he wants them to just read their lines, right? And because they are speaking different languages, they have to knock on the table when they're done with a line, like, right? Mm-hmm. To, to indicate that they're done because they don't all share the same language. That sound, the knock, the way they were trying to just read instead of emote, like that is the moment where I do feel like Hamaguchi is actively saying, okay, just this is what you need to pay attention to. Pay attention to the spaces. You know, I think like for a couple of years now, we've been talking about how foreign language films are accessible. Uh, Bong Joon-ho said that great, you know, line about how it's just a one-inch barrier that you need to get over. I, I appreciate it that this film it didn't try to indicate what language was necessarily being spoken. I understand Mandarin, and of course I understand English. So when Mandarin was spoken, and when English was spoken, I could understand those elements. And if I looked away, I think I I still understood the scene as it was playing out because I wasn't trying to focus on exactly what was being said. (laughs) Yeah, I felt similarly. I wasn't always trying to follow the plot because I don't don't think, like, you're, you know, at no point... Are you told like this is what Uncle Vanya is about, and these are the parallels to uh, to drive my car? Because it's it's not it's not that kind of a like a mini story within the story that you're supposed to be like, oh, these are the these are you know this is what it means. And Kafuku is constantly telling the actors like, you just need to let the text live within you and just be the vessel for the text and to say the words. And then once you get the rhythm of the words and the rhythm of the text, like then some transformation will happen and then mm-hmm. you will like it changes you that's what he says to to the the young man playing uncle vanya who doesn't understand he's like you know there's nothing inside of me like i don't know if i let this if i if i allow the text to drag out what is inside of me and i have nothing inside of me so it becomes it becomes about so much more than like it's about performance it's about like what actors are supposed to be doing it's about you know again mm-hmm. about so much more than just the the language, the translation, and how well you are following the specifics of the story. In a lot of ways, it's about expression and, you know, the creative process mm-hmm. and how you reach the core of a character, right? But I also found it, this was after I had seen the film and I was looking at interviews. And I think I had seen one with uh, that quoted Murakami back in like 1990 when he said that he didn't want his works to be adapted Yes, he's anti his work, mm-hmm. his novels being adapted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in 1990, he said it's enough for a book to be a book. And I mm-hmm. think I take those scenes as an argument, a direct argument against, mm-hmm. <laughs> against that, that, that you can take, you know, a Chekhov play and you can make it absolutely understandable just through emotions and spaces and intonation rather than the language itself. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking 
I'm doing this again. I'm sorry. I'm just taking us on a journey to different uh, waypoints. <laughs> Take us away. But I'm Drive thinking us of that scene. <laughs> I'm driving the car. <laughs> beep, beep. I, I think of that scene with the two actresses, uh, the one who speaks Mandarin and the one who speaks Korean sign language. Mm-hmm. And the two of them are rehearsing outside and mm. they you know, wander around each other. And if you don't listen to the dialogue directly... For me, half of it was understanding the Mandarin, and then the other half was just kind of gathering the, the subtitles as I went. But if you just watch that scene even without any sound at all, you understand what's happening, where what their bond is. And I think it's just a direct argument against this idea that you can't play with language as it is on the page. Right. I, I, will, <laughs> I will say re Vanya. I'm not a Chekhov expert, but, you know, that's a play about a bunch of characters sitting around talking who by and large well they're then they're talking they certainly, they're not in a car there's no cars in uh there is a gun of course uh with Chekhov right. written on it of course it's Chekhov's gun no uh but uh but no but it is it's about characters uh who are preoccupied with the feeling of like have I wasted my life you know mm-hmm. have I lived a meaningful existence they're thinking about lost love. They're thinking about like, what if my life had gone differently? You know, like it is about introspection and sort of the unhappy past and how to sift through that and all that. Like, you know, so there's sort of nice thematic connections that are not yes. on the nose or anything uh, yeah. obvious or clanging or, you know, like this movie is not like uncle Vanya in the modern day or anything like that. It's, <laughs> but you know, there's, there, there's, there's good atmospheric connections. 17歳の男子らしくない整った部屋で彼女は親の特に when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Kafuku, the main character uh, in the sort of long prologue to the film, is married to Oto, who's a screenwriter. And they, Oto con- conceives her stories while she's having sex with him and kind of narrates them in this sort of like fugue state. Like she's sort of like half awake. Yeah. And so like they have this like unspoken, powerful, creative bond. And yet also as he realizes she's uh, cheating on him with a hot young actor who she's collaborated with. And they, uh, they lost a child earlier in their life, which we, we find out. And these are, these are things they clearly can't talk about. Like, you know, the, and, and so after she dies, he's plumbing through all of those feelings. And then there's another, you know, two hours and 20 minutes of movie in which she tries to put on a very complicated seeming performance of uncle Vanya. Do you think you guys would have liked this? Like, would would you go see the weird Uncle Vanya? It seems good. I'd I think I would. It. I seriously yeah. would. I would too, simply because I'd never seen anything like it. Exactly. I'd be like, uh, okay, sure. One of them's talking in one language. Okay, and I okay, all right, yeah. It's all projected. I assume we're gonna see some subtitles. Yeah. I hope all the subtitles are projected in every language. Right. And, so it's just this giant screen behind them. I mean, we also see him perform in Waiting for Godot, and they have the same. We do at the start trick. of the movie. Yes. Yeah, right. at the start of it. So we get the sense that he's someone who just just he's been playing with this format for some time. 
and he wants to really mount something evocative right. with Uncle Vanya two years later. Yeah. I I am a bit of a Murakami super fan. I'm about to say that, and yet then I will also follow this up with like I have read Drive My Car, uh, the short story, which is in the um, you can read it in the collection Men Without Women, uh, and this movie also pulls from another couple stories in that collection. Sort of, I think Shahrazad, and there's another one that Kino yeah. is the other mm-hmm. one. I, I think the more maybe more sort of getting some vibes from those two. Um, but I don't think that any of those have the um, high concept uncle vanya (laughs) 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 like i think that that is one of the many embellishments hamaguchi is throwing on to this movie because hamaguchi for you know uh he's been floating around for a little bit he's a very exciting japanese director he don't make short movies the guy makes them long and drive my car is pretty darn long it's like oh he adapted a a murakami short story you're like oh okay sure like a 20 page short story. how long's the movie three hours oh sure so like you know he's filling in lots and lots of details but what i was amazed by when i first watched this movie and i'm definitely talking too much i'm gonna let you guys talk is uh is is it's very difficult to nail the sort of kind of you know slightly removed aloof tone of murakami like cinematically obviously you know like it is not something that feels automatically visual and he really just understands that atmosphere better than anyone else i've seen trying to do it and i really i do like some other murakami adaptations what do you guys think do you guys like haruki murakami yeah I have enjoyed Haruki Murakami. Um, Mm. I'm glad you mentioned the short story and like we don't have to go too in depth about the differences and you know the 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 sort of adaptation choices that Hamaguchi made but it is interesting to me that he how he chose to tell the story purely chronologically rather than in the short story which is mostly you know this this conversation there are conversations that happen between him and his driver sort of the stuff is unfolding in flashback. And I know Hamaguchi said that he did not want to do flashbacks. Um, he right. wanted people to know, just, just to see the entire story from beginning to end. And thinking about it, it's so effective that I think with a lot of stories that talk about grief and loss, um, sometimes it, those flashbacks can happen and it's like, oh, okay, I understand why this character is the way they are. But if you are there from the beginning and you kind of see this, you know, this relationship that he had with his wife as a living, breathing person before you know she dies, that simmers underneath the rest of of the text and the rest of his interactions with people. And you're kind of waiting for it to all bubble up as opposed to, you know, having him just straight up tell you this is a movie that really shows and, and tells very little. Um, and you're constantly reading between the lines. And I think that creates a little bit of that that remove that you're you're talking about David um in a way that doesn't feel that doesn't feel forced and it doesn't feel cold either like that's I feel like this is a very warm and humane movie and and uh that's like I was also impressed by just how he he managed to get that tone yeah he doesn't adapt Murakami in a way that you might expect considering the way Murakami plays with memory and nested realities and and or at least characters inner realities right the visuals, the the movement of this film is evocative of Murakami. It's kind of, mm-hmm. it's a film that I think traffics in a lot of contradictions, right? It has, it's dealing with all of this emotion and ideas that are intangible, and yet it feels so grounded because it is told 
chronologically, it earns its long running time because it needs you to immerse completely into the reality of the story itself so that, as Lenica was saying, you start reading between the lines. There's one scene in particular that I think we should talk about, which comes, I don't even remember at what point this comes because of the running time, <laughs> but when he is finally sitting in the backseat talking to the man that he had seen his wife cheat on him with, Who's very cute, to be clear. Yes, he's, he's very cute. very, very handsome. He's, very, he's like a younger you know, version of Kafuku. Like, exactly. It's very he's sort clear. of like you're looking at this kind of very burnished, pretty yeah. 20-something version. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Now, on the surface, this scene, you could just sum it up as a conversation between two men who share a love for the same woman, and they are having a conversation that involves some confessions. But the way Hamaguchi films it... The way the shadows move across the younger man's face and across the older man's and the the way that you see the landscape continue to move around the car, it, it becomes spooky. There's just something much richer, right? And that's that's what Murakami is, right? Is like you can have something very simple on the surface, but actually it is thoroughly rich and complicated. Right. You can have a sort of meditative one of my yes. favorite I mean, when I was when I was a teenager I was in a bookstore and I plucked a book called Hardboiled Wonderland and the End of the World oh, off the so shelf. Oh, so good. I love which that book. is the first Murakami book I ever read and is still kind of my sentimental favorite, even though I think he's written better novels. And I, you know, I was like 15 years old and I was like, cool, this is like noiry and sci-fi, like, okay. And I read it and there's a very early scene where a character's in an elevator and he's sort of talking about the difference between understanding that the elevator is moving and not moving. Mm-hmm. And like Murakami's always been very good at like trying to frame that kind of meditative space your brain can enter, like even in a sort of very mundane moment. And in Drive My Car, Tofuku, he loves to drive this car, okay? <laughs> guy gets in his sob, he fires it up, beep, beep, he's on the road. They s- clearly somehow either digitally changed all the other cars to paint color or they were just herding colorful cars off the road because it's always just kind of just kind of looks real nice amid all the bland cars on the road. It does look great. Um, and he's initially in the movie, and this is from the short story as well, he's, he's, he's uh, resistant to having someone else drive his car because he's clearly kind of entering in this kind of, you know, much like his wife does when they have sex in the early parts of the movie, like, you know, this kind of peaceful fugy, whatever, however, you, you know, like he, that's where he is at his most balanced. And so uh, he's yeah. not sure if he wants Misaki Watari to drive him around. But then, and it's a scene I love early on where they're like, how do you know, he, they're the, but the two of them are at dinner they're chatting with the theater festival people and they ask how how his driving is this i think this is the lead of my review and he's just mm-hmm. like when she speeds up or slows down it's very smooth it doesn't feel heavy at all i sometimes they forget i'm even riding in a car and i'm like that's the murakami vibe man like he, he's saying it out loud i went to the short story and i was like is that line in the in here like did he just lift it and he didn't he just hamaguchi just kind of gets what is so mm-hmm. important about that frame of mind for this this character? Like that's what he's craving, and that's why mm-hmm. he forms this sort of unspoken bond with uh, Watari. This movie's so good. It's so it's <laughs> so good. I've rewatched it multiple times, and each time I'm, I like new things jump out at me, and like 
the, the car, I'm glad we're talking about the car because it's, it is, it is a very cute car. It's a good car. Red. Beep, beep. And, and Hong Kong. it's this, it's this liminal space kind of in between home and work. And it's this space that he, he tends to listen to um, these recordings, these, these cassette tapes where he practices his lines. And so like his, his wife, his late wife would record, you know, half of the lines and he would speak the other half just to sort of practice the script. Um, and after she dies, he continues to listen to the, to the cassette tapes and to basically talk to her. And so it's this kind of haunted place for him and for him to sort of bring her to life again and to, to reenact this relationship. And it means something to him to be able to hear her. And, and even after Watari starts driving him around, because she's so good at her job, he forgets that she's there. And mm-hmm. uh, she becomes kind of this witness to this grief that he's playing out. And he's continuing to talk to his wife and listen to the to the tape. And it isn't until much later that he reveals to her that that the voice is his wife's and and she's dead. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, does that creep you out? And it's but but by that time they've already established this kind of deeper connection where she's she understands much more about this person just by virtue of toting him here and there from around the city and and listening to his conversations and and it it really like you need that time to build that that slow acquaintance between them. You know, not to be graphic order, but the sex that they have, uh, Kafuku mm-hmm. and his wife, is seems so like you know magical and kind of like they, they seem like synchronized and they're they mm-hmm. they're talking to each other in this dreamy way and you're kind of like oh my god this is like a couple that's achieved this like deep understanding and then so like you kind of understand that he's got this sort of bafflement and insult when he then sees her having what seems like kind of more carnal you know kind uh-huh. of sex with uh, this young actor and so like maybe that's part of this dynamic is he's like trying to project maturity onto him and see if that makes sense mm. the, there's so many dynamics yeah. at work that are unspoken in this film that are very interesting mm-hmm. and that's yeah. good in my opinion and that's why the film is deserving of high praise and uh awards from from mm-hmm. critics and academy voters from critics' circles <laughs> <laughs> with votes that are tallied by one David Sims. Right, yes. Right, <laughs> right in my little notches. <laughs> like you were saying, David, um, there's so many little paths you can go down with this movie and all are, I think, equally fascinating and rich and you could be talking about each of them for hours. Um, but uh, one of the other characters that that I was so fascinated by and... I just found so like mesmerizing was Lee Yuna, who is the um, the nonverbal actress who is uh, cast in the role of Sonia. And the way that she's introduced is during the audition phase, and her scene like almost you know brought me to tears. It's 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 fairly short, but the way that she communicates with her body and with her eyes and you can see immediately why she, why she was cast. And just to kind of go back to your the, the things we were talking about, about language and the things that aren't said and in the way that we can communicate without sort of the traditional modes of communication, I think she's just such a perfect example of, of that. 
I'm so glad we're getting to do this because <laughs> I could just I feel like I, I could talk about this movie forever. And you're catching me um, like trying to like not trying to. I'm like realizing there are other things that I didn't think as thoroughly about that I want to now. Right. There are little eddies you can sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. explore next time you watch it or mm-hmm. whatever. Right. Exactly. In part two and three. <laughs> this, this is a three hour long podcast. Whatever. Or let's way. do a Wheel of Fortune <laughs> fantasy part. It's fine. We'll just do Hamaguchi casts yeah. all the time. It's very commercial and, uh, and broadly accessible. But you know, that's the whole thing. As vroom, much, vroom. Let's go. As much as I'm, I'm making that joke and obviously this movie is smaller than you know the batman or whatever but it is a movie that <laughs> was given a shot you know it like during omicron mm. during you know a, a tough time for theatrical exhibition in general and people went to see it like you know whatever mm-hmm. critics and awards bodies highlighted it and then oscar voters paid attention you know like it, it's it's a movie that seems like a tougher sell than it is or whatever you know like if people see it they're yeah. like yeah that was cool i get it you know okay. like it's 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 mm-hmm. I think it's it's from Janus, you know, it's from um super the, accessible. The very small uh distributor Janus and I think it is their most successful film ever. Janus. Janus, uh, yeah. you know, the big the big wow. head. I um, don't know, it's that. probably Jan- yeah, the big head. I can't remember if it's Janus, Janus or Janus. Namesake of January. Exactly. <laughs> I think. Yes, that the Roman yes. <laughs> god. Uh, <laughs> um the god of doors, gates and transitions. Very Ooh. cool. <gasps> All right. Very cool. Cars have doors. <laughs> this is a two-door sob, I believe, right? We're making so many jokes about this movie. I keep it light. It's just so If David's light. hosting, I'm driving the car. You do. I'm grateful because this movie always, like, whenever I rewatch it, it puts me in this... This, yeah, this it's it's not a laugh yeah. riot. The like, film itself. No. Yeah, it's, it's not. not. It's not heavy on the jokes. I love it, though. Um, <laughs> In fact, I'm now trying to think if there are any jokes in this movie. I don't think so, right? There's there's, there's I mean there's lighter I don't think if I moments. laughed at any point. Yeah. yeah. There's sort of sweeter moments. And Kafuku is such a sort of stony-faced guy a lot of the time that any time he kind yeah. of lightens up or softens a little bit, it's you, yeah. you know, it's you mm. feel it like it, you know, it 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 feels more significant. Yeah. The- a couple moments that I, I i remember at least like chuckling and because of that stony facedness right. i love words um when mm-hmm. he you know when he like goes to where he's going to be staying in hiroshima or like an hour out right he's you know and um oh, the festival director yes. is like so what you think and he he's like the view is so beautiful <laughs> <laughs> and the festival director is like no about the driver that we just because you needed us to drive <laughs> like you you had all these specifications and he's like oh i mean there there are moments but no this is not this is not a comedy the golden globes cannot put this in the musical or comedy <laughs> category no no <laughs> it is not, it a, is musical. not a musical for sure. there's some there's although some there decent, is music some decent there is needle music. drops obviously apparently mm-hmm. hamaguchi i heard wanted to license the Beatles song Drive My Car. Of course, uh Murakami is a Beatle maniac. And uh, you know, Beatles songs are real hard to license for a film. Uh they all ended up in the movie <laughs> yesterday and you cannot use it well, anywhere else now. Well that's true, but no, you see you're allowed to cover it. That's the thing. If you cover the song, you're fine. Because that's why I am Sam pulls that trick as well. But uh but remember Across the Universe. Remember Across the Universe. But remember when Mad Men ended an episode with Tomorrow Never Knows? And like I remember that's later they mm. were like we 
spent mm-hmm. a lot of the season's budget on that because we were like, it was. It's very mm-hmm. crucial. It was worth it. That, but it was anyway. worth it. Anyway. Um, it was so good. So he didn't get Drive My Car. There's a, there's a lot of Beethoven in this movie. That's mm-hmm. another Murakami mm-hmm. favorite. You know, Murakami stories, I mm-hmm. love the guy, to be clear. I love him unreservedly. I know he's got his faults, but like I, he, I, he was big for me as a younger reader and stuff. Mm-hmm. But like it is often like as I smoked my 18th cigarette and poured my 14th <laughs> glass of Cuddy Sark and I put on a Sonata, <laughs> I fed my cat some sardines and, I, and then I went to the kitchen. Right. And I cooked I a meal spaghetti. that sounds completely fabulous, <laughs> like, you know, using whatever was in the cupboard. And then I reminisced on some insanely hot sex I had with someone. And like, and then the phone rang yeah, and, and it was, it was a secret agent. And you're sort of like, okay, you know, like it, it, he's, got, he's got his vibes. And this mm-hmm. movie... You know, is is narrowing yeah. on a particular sort of melancholic aspects of Murakami's sort of interests or whatever. It's a little less cool, I would say, yeah. than some of his storytelling. But yeah, it's cool. I, I mean, mean I, it is. It's fucking cool. But you know, like you know, yeah. no one owns a jazz club or anything mm-hmm. like that. But yeah, you know, it's 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 a yeah. good representation of that that kind of mindset. I did watch this film before I read the story and so like i knew i just like if you if you know if you read murakami you know like when when um misaki watari's character appeared for the first time you're like oh you know he probably wrote like an on a like a very uh quiet and unassuming young woman like you can you know that he described her in great physical detail and indeed you go and it's like she was very plain and uh and a homely young lady and it's like okay yes um but uh, in in in, in spite, I, I agree. I agree with what you said. Like, I think there are the the very obviously like Murakami elements to it. Like, I'm I'm glad that uh, that Hamaguchi did not include the the material in the first like few pages of the short story where it's like women aren't that great at driving. Women can't drive. I'm not saying that men are better, but they're like. The character is supposed to be a bit of a... He, he's going to be won over by this female driver. He's supposed to be yes. stereotypically... But it is, yes, yeah. the, the, the short story is like... Yes. <laughs> ladies driving? What are you talking about? <laughs> to Kafuku's credit, he did not need that much convincing. He, she just like, like drove like, him right, once right, and he was I like, yeah, you're great. I don't feel the card right. off. <laughs> yeah. uh, no notes. Um, I assume... I'm now thinking of other... Um, Murakami adaptations. I, I assume you guys have both well, burning. seen Burning, which was a wonderful yes. Korean film. Burning. From yes, a few yes. years ago, Loved which is burning. also based on a short story. Almost everything is based on a short story. Barn Burning. Yeah, Barn right? Burning. Yeah. Uh, which is creepy and mysterious and sort of, you know, inscrutable. It's about characters who are not also quite sure sexy. if they can... It, very sexy. Um, and mm-hmm. then... Have you guys seen, I highly recommend it, if no one has, uh, Jun Ichikawa's film, Tony Takatani, uh, which is based on a, another mm. short story of his, which has beautiful music and is about this sort of like lonely, introverted guy. And it's told in this very weird manner where like it's sort of like these sliding frames that are still and it like moves from frame to it's sort of hard to describe but uh, that's a really cool movie i've never seen the norwegian wood mm. adaptation which is the only mm-hmm. like f- novel i know of his mm. being I, I know murakami was not like thrilled with that movie he's thrilled with this one yeah he likes this one yeah he he has said that he likes this one uh bong joon ho also loves it uh we were talking bong about Jun-ho that off mic uh there was an article yes, in the we times were. 
Yeah, and he was, I'll just quote Bong here. He says, I would compare this to the sound of a bell that resonates for a long time. I mean, that that's pretty. That's pretty great. The impact <laughs> of this film feels good. The director of Parasite, obviously, which which won Best Picture a couple of years ago, and a great old sweetie pie who loves movies. Um, <laughs> Big old teddy bear. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, so in terms of the Oscar conversation, I don't know. I mean, it is just very interesting. And that, you know, coupled with other movies sort of getting recognized, it, it does point to. We talked about this a little bit on the Power of the Dog episode how the voting memberships clearly changed and their sort of efforts to diversify and youthify, honestly, uh, the, mm-hmm. the voting pool has reaped some very interesting rewards. Do you think that there's like, you know, a change in international film, how it's being perceived by audiences? I feel like the year after Parasite, mm-hmm. when Minari came out, it was like, oh, remember Parasite? This is like Parasite. I mean, I understand why the comparisons are being made, but it feels like, you know, each year there is some kind of like, uh, the last few years, there's a hot non-English mm-hmm. language sure. best picture contender. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, and if, if only like for the fact that these movies are, are more in the spotlight, I think that's great. Um, surely maybe you can speak more to whether they're, because <laughs> you, you, you've written a little bit about, about this kind of thing. I mean, I largely, I largely feel the same way that you do, Lenica. Like, I think, I think it's, it's mm. great um, that there's room at the Oscars for foreign language films to be recognized. I think we do, sometimes we, we're too hasty to say that, you know, a film like Parasite winning is a harbinger for everything being great, <laughs> you know, from, from here on out. <laughs> but partly because last year when Minari was named, you know, international, what was it? Like, I, I think when it was only nominated in the international category, was it the Golden Globes? Oh, yeah, yeah, because the Gold Globes have mm-hmm. this sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. annoying yeah. rule of like, if you're foreign film, yeah. you don't count as a drama or comedy or whatever yeah. it is they do. There's nothing yeah. wrong with the Golden Globes yeah. apart from that. I'm joking. The Golden Globes <laughs> are very broken as an institution. <laughs> but, you know, a moment like that where you're kind of like, oh, but that, that, come on. You know, that's also a deeply American story. And, you, you know, we saw yeah. there was a lot of debate around what was going on there. I just think that, you know, as Lenico was saying, it's great that there's a space for foreign language films to be recognized on this level, but I also don't think they should only be seen as foreign language films. Right. Right. So that is that. Mm-hmm. That is the bottom line. It's great that these, like this is, again, J- Japan mm-hmm. has among the richest cinema histories of any country ever. Mm-hmm. It's sort of sort of shocking mm-hmm. that it's like, wait, mm-hmm. this is the first Japanese film to get a Best Picture nomination. But right, obviously, it always used to be like, well, you know, you're in the foreign film category, whatever. So it's great mm-hmm. that the Oscars are expanding, but it does, yes, it does kind of feel like, yeah, well, there's space for like a movie or two to break out in that way yeah. on, on that yeah. scale and maybe, you know, so it's still baby steps, but it's not just that this is a foreign language film. It's that this is a very quiet, very spare <laughs> three hour emotional drama about feelings slowly <laughs> being drawn out car ride after car ride, you know, which is like, that's the other thing, you know, like Oscars, yeah. you know, they used to have, uh, whatever more uh middle of the road tastes and drive my car is in the left lane baby mm-hmm. or the right <laughs> lane I, I don't know which is the more yeah it's passing uh anyway the right lane is the slow that's lane. the slow lane and it is a slow movie so maybe that's where it is it's like it's like my mom it's it's oh, hanging in the yeah. right lane in it's case taking its time excuse me <laughs> Uh, my mom doesn't like the left lane. Anytime I'm in the left lane, my mom's like, why are you in the left lane? And I'm like, it's the fastest lane. Anyway, uh, let's finish with uh, a game. Uh, yes. Do you guys have a favorite Murakami novel or story? I shouted out 
Hardboiled Wonderland at the end of the world. Dance, Dance, Dance is kind of my favorite. Uh, I do love, obviously, mm. The Wind Up Bird Chronicle, which is sort of his like opus, and that is a very important book for me. But I don't know. What do you guys? You guys are you guys Murakami heads? Mm. Hardboiled Wonderland: The End of the World is such a fun mm-hmm. and weird book that it's like for all the reasons that you said um it is extremely enjoyable i read wind up bird chronicle like maybe 10 years ago now or something and i started rereading it and i was like well i don't i barely remember any of these things that happened um i do just remember a very difficult to read torture scene in a well very intense Um, (laughs) that just it was the weird it was it was a very well done scene very it just it, it like Mm. pulled tears out of my eyes like in just the strangest way where I wasn't like aware that I was emotional but it was just it was it was like a a masterful scene and I just I really enjoyed that book Mm -hmm. but I would need to revisit it um yeah I'll shout out Shahrazad because I do think that story is worth properly reading instead of just from a a fugue state retelling. <laughs> right, the, the thing <laughs> with the trading the tampon for the pencil—it's it's the start of drive my yes, car. Yes, yes, yes. The lamprey stuff. That that is in yes. uh, Men Without Women. That 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 collection of stories. Yes. That does it for the show. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend. With help from AC Valdez, uh, the executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts is Claudina Bade. Our art is by Charlie Lemignon. I'm David Sims. Thank you, Lenica. <gasps> Thanks, David. Thanks, Lenica. Thanks, Shirley. Thank you, David. Bye. Beep, beep. <laughs>